Hi, and welcome back. This is Doug Ober, the creator of the Global Migration Podcast, brought to you by the Migration Research Cluster at the University of British Columbia. For many of us, the events of the past few months have changed almost everything, from the way we work and connect with friends and family to how we get our groceries and go about our daily lives. But one thing that history teaches us about catastrophic events and crises is that the decisions we make today and the way we respond to these events right now are bound to stay with us long into the future. This pandemic is no different. And in today's episode, Antia Ellerman, Associate Professor of Political Science at UBC and the co-director of UBC Migration, sits down with two legal scholars to discuss the ways the pandemic is changing immigration procedures and the protection of rights and privacy at the U.S.-Canadian border. Antia speaks with Efrat Arbel, Associate Professor at the Allard School of Law and a Specialist in Refugee Law, and Ben Gould, Professor at the Allard School of Law and an expert in surveillance and privacy. They discuss the troubled legacy of the safe third country agreement between the U.S. and Canada, immigration detention facilities, the use of contact tracing apps, and what the right to privacy means in a public health crisis. And perhaps most importantly, why it's so critical that we think carefully about the way we respond to the novel coronavirus. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Antje Ellerman, and I'm here today to speak with Efrat Arbel and Ben Gould about borders and rights during COVID-19. A warm welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Today we'll be exploring the question of how the Canadian government has balanced the protection of public health with the protection of individual rights during the current pandemic. Now there is no question that we need to protect public health and that's on everybody's mind right now, but we've also started to see how measures to protect public health have started to undermine the protection of some other rights. Today we'll be focusing on two of these rights. The first right is the human right to protection, which is codified under the Geneva Refugee Convention. And we'll be talking about asylum seekers who arrive at Canada's borders after having fled their country of origin and are now faced with a closed border. The second right we'll be talking about is a civil right, which is the right to privacy. And we'll explore challenges to privacy in relation to surveillance at the border but also in relation to the use of contact tracing apps in Canadian communities. Let me just say one thing before we get started. Many of us, I think, found ourselves thinking in March that getting through this pandemic was going to be a sprint, an exhausting but rather short-lived period. And I think at this point we are realizing that we are in all likelihood running a marathon and that the kind of issues related to individual rights we'll be discussing today will continue to be with us for quite some time. We're also realizing that once all of this is over, some things will not return to the way they were before the pandemic, which is all the more reason to have these conversations now as we think about how our policymakers should balance different sets of rights. Let's begin with a conversation about COVID-19 and refugee protection. Efrat, as a scholar of refugee law and a refugee advocate, can you start out by providing us with a bit of background about Canada's pre-COVID policy toward asylum seekers, right? So that is 
toward those non-Canadians who arrive at our land borders or international airports and ask the Canadian government for humanitarian protection. So um, pre-COVID, and uh, this policy still exists today, it's just being managed differently. Uh, the Canada-US border was regulated by the Safe Third Country Agreement as regards asylum seekers. And as you said, these are individuals who flee their countries of origin for reasons of persecution. They are being persecuted either by their state or in their state in ways that their state is unable to prevent. And they arrive at the land border seeking to make a claim in Canada for refugee protection. Because of Canada's geographic location, it's very difficult to arrive through any other place. We're surrounded by water on all our remaining edges. And it's quite expensive and often far too challenging to arrive here by air and um, certainly very challenging to arrive here by boat. So the land border presents one of the primary ways through which asylum seekers can enter Canada to seek protection. The Safe Third Country Agreement is a bilateral agreement that Canada and the US signed in 2004. It was introduced as one of several post 9-11 border security measures. And the way it works is kind of revealed by its name. So it's called the Safe Third Country Agreement because Canada recognizes the United States as a safe country and vice versa. The United States recognizes Canada as a safe country, a safe country for refugees. The agreement has a series of prescriptions as to what exactly safe means, compliance with various international agreements and the like, but at its core, the designation of being a safe country means that asylum seekers, refugee claimants, have basic procedural and human rights protections. It's a very controversial and problematic agreement because the overwhelming view among refugee advocates, refugee scholars, and indeed this was confirmed by a federal court decision here in Canada back in uh, 2006, is that the United States is not a safe country for refugees. That for decades now, the United States policies as regards refugees, this is both at the level of law and practice, fall so far below international standards of refugee protection that the United States is not a safe country for refugees. And this has been really the, the crux of why this agreement is so problematic. The government has deemed the United States to be a safe country, but refugee advocates, refugee lawyers, refugee scholars, those of us who work in the field, um, state contrary to that. The way the agreement operates is that when a refugee claimant, an asylum seeker, comes to official port of entry at the border, if they're entering through the United States, Canada can send them back. There are some exceptions to that. There are several categories where exceptional entries can be made. But unless you fit within those exceptions, Canada sends you back. And again, the operating assumption is it's okay for Canada to do that because you'll be safe in the United States. But given that the United States is not safe, this agreement operates to put the lives, the safety, and the rights of refugees at risk. And we've seen this over the last several decades of refugees being subject to significant human rights violations, either within the United States or as a result of being returned to their home countries. So this calls into question Canada's commitment to refugee protection. 
under the United Nations Convention, we have an obligation to keep our borders open to refugees, not to admit them or accept them, but to consider their claims, to allow them to appeal to us for protection and we get to decide who gets to stay and who does not. Through the Safe Third Country Agreement, we renege on that commitment. We close the border to refugees, to certain refugees, and we send them back to a place that we know is not safe. Before we talk more about what has happened since COVID-19, um, can you just explain to us what is often referred to as a loophole in the agreement with regards to irregular border crossers, just to make sure we, we all understand the significance of that? Absolutely. The Safe Third Country Agreement is only operative at official ports of entry. So those are ports of entry that are regulated by the Canadian state. It does not, however, apply in other parts of the border where the state has not positioned state actors in that same way. So under Canadian law, the Canadian courts have recognized that the land border is a site of refugee protection. Any individual who sets foot on Canadian soil, and that means either within the border or on the border, under Canadian law, is entitled to protection. And again, this does not mean they're entitled to refugee status. They're entitled to have their claim heard. The quote-unquote loophole operates in the way that if you are an asylum seeker and you cross in between those ports of entry, so at any other point on the Canada-US border, you are not prohibited from entering. And once you are in Canada, you are allowed to make an asylum claim in the same way that other asylum seekers would be entitled to. And so in a, in a bizarre way, the Safe Third Country Agreement incentivizes people to cross in between ports of entry. Because when you cross in between a port of entry, you are actually entitled to a greater scope of protection once having set foot on Canadian soil. So let's fast forward then to shifts in border policy as a result of COVID-19. And so in, in mid-March, right, the Canadian government announces that it would introduce a 14-day mandatory isolation period for asylum seekers who arrive in Canada irregularly, right? So between official border crossings. Then on March 20th, Trudeau announces that Canada would close the border with the U.S. to all non-essential travel. And non-essential travel was defined as travel for the purpose of trade and commerce. And so while non-citizens could still enter as temporary foreign workers, those who arrived for the purpose of humanitarian protection would now no longer be admitted. And while all of this ha is happening, the Trump administration cites an obscure quarantine law to announce that all non-citizens who arrive overland without valid documents would potentially face deportation. And this includes asylum seekers trying to enter across the US-Mexican border. Now, of course, this policy provides further ammunition for refugee advocates who long argued that the US is no longer a safe country for asylum seekers for the reasons that you've just explained to us. Now, if the United States violates its international obligations of refugee protection, and if Canada closes its border and sends all asylum seekers back to the States, then Canada presumably also violates its obligations. So now let me ask you two related questions. First, 
how are we to understand this turnaround by the Trudeau government when it comes to the treatment of asylum seekers, right? From a stance of they can still enter between crossings, just have to go into isolation for the protection of public health to nobody can enter. And second, why not just stick with a mandatory isolation period, right? As a, as a nice balance between refugee protection and the protection of public health. So how do we understand the turnaround? And why not stick with a mandatory isolation period? I don't have a clear answer for that. I am of the view that Canada is under clear obligations under international law and domestic law to keep the border open under all circumstances. The, the legal obligations that exist in these international documents, as well as in our own Charter of Rights and Freedoms and the case law that surrounds it, requires us to keep the border open. And as you said, a mandatory quarantine period might be something that, that refugees might be subject to, and there's a whole host of other measures that the government can utilize to ensure public health and safety. To the question of how to understand the turnaround, I think this question speaks to a broader undercurrent that underpins Canadian policies as regards refugees. Canada is widely recognized as a world leader in refugee protection, and there's very good reason for that. There are a variety of different ways in which Canada has led the world in refugee protection, uh, implemented policies and measures, statements, um, principles of law that enhance the protection of refugees in really meaningful ways. And Canada has, throughout its history, received uh, much deserved recognitions for its settlement policies, certainly in the 80s and recently with respect to the resettlement of Syrian refugees, Canada has taken significant initiatives to open its borders and bring people in. But at the same time as Canada has, has made these significant efforts that have resulted in meaningful protection, there's always an undercurrent. And Canada has simultaneously led the world in implementing policies that restrict refugees from entering and that do so in ways that are complicated and difficult to identify. And what I mean by that is we have implemented a policy called the Multiple Borders Strategy, whereby the Canadian state repositions the location of the border as regards refugees and extends the border outwards, pushes the border outwards to prevent refugees from entering. The point that I'm driving at is, I don't see this so much as a turnaround, the policy that you um, spoke of, but rather a manifestation of what has long been characteristic of Canadian refugee protection. That on the one hand, we are a welcoming nation that adheres to international principles and domestic principles of rights protection, but that simultaneously we implement significantly restrictive measures that hurt the rights of refugees. And we do so most prominently by preventing refugees from entering. And for me, the shutting of the border post COVID is yet another manifestation of that same tendency. Thank you for that. It seems that this is a pattern that you know, we see across the global north right now where a public health crisis can be used to stifle dissent that you otherwise would hear by refugee advocates in terms of closing the borders to refugees because public health seems to trump everything else. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to also spend a few minutes talking about detention with you because I know that's one of your areas of research and one concern 
of refugee advocates with regards to the Safe Third Country Agreement is that those asylum seekers who are returned to the U.S. could be placed into detention, which is problematic at the best of times, but at a time of pandemic, being housed in a detention center bears really aggravated risks to physical safety. So I'd like to start out by asking you what we actually know about the situation of detained immigrants. Have there been outbreaks? Is it a problem? Yes, you're absolutely right. There is a significant risk that asylum seekers or refugee claimants who are unable to enter the Canadian border will be detained in the United States. This is one of the most dangerous and damaging consequences of the Safe Third Country Agreement, even pre-COVID. There is a certainty, it's not even a likelihood, that more asylum seekers are being placed in detention in truly atrocious conditions of confinement. And it's virtually impossible to protect from the spread of uh, COVID-19 in those kinds of conditions. Initially, with the, the global outbreak of COVID-19, there seemed to be global recognition. Individuals who are held in institutional settings will be most at risk. And one such institutional setting is the prison. The WHO, the World Health Organization sounded alarms as to the potential spread of COVID-19 in conditions of confinement. And one of the conditions that the WHO warned against was immigration detention. Situations in which people are unable to exercise distancing protocols and are put at significant risk as a result of that. That is very much a concern in Canada. And in addition to the concern of COVID spreading within immigration detention, in Canada we have very few dedicated immigration detention facilities, only three. And many detainees, and this is prevalent here in British Columbia, are held in correctional facilities, in provincial correctional facilities intermingled with criminal populations. There has been a significant outcry from prison advocates as to the risk faced by anyone who is held in those facilities. And we've seen here in British Columbia and across the country significant outbreaks of COVID-19 within prison environments, either provincial jails or, or federal prisons. And detainees are at risk uh, in the same way the prisoners are. And yet we have seen far less attention being given by government actors and lawmakers as to the risk faced by detainees as compared with prisoners. So what measures would you suggest then to better protect the health of those who are in detention centers or correctional facilities right now? The first thing that comes to mind is release. And this applies especially with immigration detention. Many individuals who are held in immigration detention are held for discretionary reasons. One such discretionary reason is, for example, that the state is unable to determine their identity and therefore wants to detain them until their identity is known. An individual who's held on that grounds poses no risk, not to themselves, not to the public. And myself and, and advocates who work in the field have long criticized this policy for why is it that we have to detain or imprison such individuals when they really pose no risk and there's, there's no justification for this. You know, Ben can speak to this at great length given his expertise in criminal law, but 
there are strict measures in our laws as to when we can deprive individuals of liberty and when we can't, and a whole host of procedural and legal protections that accompany that. And those just don't seem to apply in the detention context. And so release, we have mechanisms for holding people in, in quote unquote alternative ways, refugee shelters, community housing. There are uh, large numbers of, of willing and able advocates in the community who are able to assist, who are able to organize, who are able to find housing and assistance for individuals who are detained and to hold them in ways where again, they can still be accountable to the state but are not subject to these extreme deprivations of liberty and to really horrific conditions of confinement that puts them at risk of contracting the virus. And it's, it's interesting to think about this because in the same, you know, as a contrast to the ways in which the closure of the border seems to entrench this distinction between us and them, detention opens up a possibility of thinking about things in a different way. Pre-COVID, it was clear, according to the case law and the policies, again, I disagree with this, but detainees were cast as the, the them, and the Canadian public were cast as the we. And one kind of small point of optimism is that as detention cases continue to come before adjudicators and decision makers, we have seen a slight shift of more and more decision makers granting detainees release. And with that shift, I see a small kind of shift in that us and them paradigm where decision makers are more willing to recognize that the threat that we face, this ostensible threat, is actually not posed by the non-citizen. The, the threat, quote unquote, is the threat of, in, of infection or contagion. And that the we includes all of the people who the state is responsible for, irrespective of their citizenship status. And so there is a progressive possibility that COVID-19 opens up of recognizing that the we includes many more people than, than it has to date. I'd like to turn to you, Ben, and um, shift our attention to those who are still able to cross the border and have a conversation with you about how the right to privacy has been impacted by COVID-19. Give us an idea of what privacy rights Canadian citizens and permanent residents, but also non-residents were entitled to, if any, when they crossed the border into Canada. It's probably important to start, whenever we think about the border and privacy, to start from the, the recognition that we have lower expectations of privacy at the border. Um, the courts have consistently recognized that. And so whilst I think it's fair to say that Canada is well regarded around the world in terms of its commitment to privacy, and it's often a leader in terms of provincial and federal legislation around privacy, it's still the case that at the border at any rate, we have lower expectations of privacy. And so customs and border services agents can engage in searches, can both personal and of possessions in ways that they, the police officers and others wouldn't be able to do so in the regular context. And that's authorised by the Customs Act, but also a series of court decisions that have, that have acknowledged that we have lower expectations of privacy at the border. And that's really a reflection of the fact that we recognise there are security concerns when we move through international borders and there are legitimate reasons why you may want to have uh, greater powers for people like the CBSA agents in terms of things like search of individuals and, and baggage, et cetera. 
So that's an important place to start. The interesting question I think that's arising out of COVID is now that we're seeing a linking between the security question and the public health question. And so while I think we have well-developed uh, public narratives about the relationship between privacy and security, and people generally have a view about where they sit in relation to that question, I think we're still at a very early stage of thinking about how, that, how we factor in public health into that debate and discussion. One of my concerns around what's happening with COVID is that people who are normally quite concerned about privacy at the border and are, are skeptical about security arguments in terms of further eroding their privacy rights may be willing to give things up in the favour of public health. And this is against a background, and I've, I've written about this before, that privacy is already a fairly weak right. It's quite difficult to defend privacy against security concerns. And now we face another sort of question about how we, we think about privacy vis-a-vis -vis public health. And one of the things you often see when there are sort of signal events, be they about security or public health, is that you tend to see privacy come under assault, that there are efforts to sort of roll out security measures, or in the case of COVID, perhaps public health measures, that are further weaken an already weak right, and then persist when the, when the emergency is gone. So in a lot of the work that people did around privacy in the early 2000s, we recognised that post 9-11, a lot of privacy rights were eroded, particularly around the border. And even when I think it's right to say some of the threats have diminished, the erosions remained, that a lot of the security measures have stayed in place. There's not a, a need on the part of states to justify them in quite the same way they were at the beginning. And so I think the concern is that if we start to further erode privacy rights in response to COVID-19 and the public health questions around it, at what point do we reassert those rights? One of the concerns around things like tracing apps is that if we implement them at the border or implement them nationally, when this public health emergency hopefully passes, will we continue to collect that information? Will those apps continue to be used? Will they be used in different ways? So there's a real question, not just about what we do in the instant case, but what the legacy of those decisions becomes. And one of the concerns those of us who think about privacy regularly have about what's happening around COVID-19 is that whilst the measures we might want to take now seem very reasonable, there's a danger that will persist well beyond the current situation. So let me just take one step back here and ask you that if I were to cross the border into the US today and return to Canada as a Canadian citizen, would that look any different in terms of, you know, how my privacy rights are affected? At the moment, it's hard to tell. I mean, one of the, the challenges, I think, of the last few months is getting reliable information about what's happening at the border vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the privacy rights of people who are crossing the border, but also just rights in general. It's, it's problematic for a variety of reasons. One is that agencies like the CBSA are, are being fairly parsimonious with the information they're providing about what's happening on the border, but also the, the amount of border crossing has just diminished radically that we don't have a lot of people moving across the border and, and those who are moving across the border are a subset of the, the sort of larger groups that we would have normally seen pre-COVID. So it's quite difficult to know what's happening. You would expect that they're probably being a little bit more aggressive around those things just because they have fewer people crossing, there's more opportunity to engage in searches both of individuals and baggage. But it's very difficult to know. This is one of the things about borders in general is that they're not particularly transparent in terms of how agencies like CBSA, Customs and Borders in the United States actually operate. It's very difficult to get information about the number of searches conducted, what types of searches, why they're conducted, etc. So it's difficult to know. So let's say, you know, I cross the border and 
the collection of data about myself includes, you know, temperature checks, health related questions, more questions about where I've been, who I've seen. Um, and this is all justified in the name of stopping this pandemic. What would you say to, let's say, you average Canadian, you know, who travels to Mexico on vacation, comes back, undergoes these procedures, we're not quite sure what they will look like, but there will be some, and says, doesn't harm me, doesn't hurt me, what's the problem with that? What is your concern here about privacy in this context? So there's a, there's a couple of questions. One is, whenever one thinks about privacy, it's always good to ask, why is this being done? Because it's a right. So the state should start from the position of, it needs to provide a justification for infringing the right. And with privacy, I've already described as a weak right. And part of the reason for that is it's often incumbent on the individual to explain why they need to have privacy rather than the state to explain why they are allowed to infringe it. So we often start from the wrong place. One of the questions for border crosses is, how is this actually enhancing public health? How is this information that I'm being asked to give up actually being used? How is it making me and other people safer in terms of the current pandemic we face and, and, and the broader public health question? And so I think it's incumbent on states to explain why that data is being collected and what it's being used for and, and also to show that it's actually being effective, that it actually leads to outcomes that are valuable and actually promoting public health. And that's, that's also true in relation to security. Often we find that states implement security measures but never actually provide the public with information about how that data actually got used and how it made them safer. And so when we take off our shoes at the airport, the reason we do that is because we, we hope that that makes us safer, but states often don't explain how that actually happens and provide evidence to show that those measures have actually improved our public safety. The second thing I would be asking you is what's gonna to happen to the information long-term? So I think it's right to say that information collected by states generally doesn't get deleted. It usually ends up somewhere else or, or at least it gets kept and there's a danger that it ends up somewhere else. And so one of the real questions for me is that information that's being collected in the course of the state's response to this public health crisis is, where is it going to end up? So information about my own health or the people I've been in contact with or any one of a number of things that might be collected at the border, how long will that information be retained? If it is retained, can I be confident that it will only be used for a public health purpose or maybe will it be shared more broadly across the federal government or even at the provincial level? And if so, under what circumstances and where might it end up and who might end up seeing it and how might it be used? And that's, a, I think, a really important question. A lot of people don't realise that when they give information to the state at the border, there are provisions that allow that information to be shared more broadly across the various parts of the federal government. And so it's very difficult to know that the information you shared uh, in one context won't find its way into another context. And because a lot of that information is collected and transformed into digital information very quickly, tracking it down and working out where it went is very difficult. You already started talking about contact tracing apps. And so I'd like to talk a bit more about that and move from the border into our communities. Quite a few countries are already experimenting with the use of smartphone apps to trace COVID infections and then to alert the public of any contact with infected individuals. Um, how important are these apps when it comes to our ability to reopen our societies and our economies during a pandemic such as this? Um, yesterday, I read about a study by Oxford University that concluded that if 80% of mobile phone users use the contract tracing app, there would be no need for a lockdown. 
are these really are these the solution we're looking for? Are we about to see one of them in British Columbia? Yeah, so I, that's a really interesting question. I, and I think like many other people, I've been following uh, the news media to see to, about these sort of apps and, and their rollouts in other countries. To back up a little bit, I start from a place of skepticism about technological solutions. I, I think that maybe comes from, a, from working in the area of surveillance and policing for a long time, is that often at the, the early stages of discussions about technological solutions, we tend to overstate their likely effectiveness and understate their likely costs. And so one of the concerns I have is that there's been a sort of a rush to tracing apps and a lot of claims made about how effective they're going to be in terms of helping us to move through this public health emergency. I'm not a, obviously a public health person. I, don't, I can't really speak to that particular question, but I can speak to the point about the likelihood that sort of technological communicative sort of approaches have got a long history of sort of not delivering on the promises that they have at the outset. So I, I have a little bit of skepticism about that. And that relates to my sort of broader point is that I think if the state is going to ask us to use apps like that, which as far as I understand them, require us to give up quite a lot of personal information, including our location, who we're near, uh, potentially who we're communicating with, it needs to do more than say, we think this will work or this seems like it might be the right way to go, let's try it out. I think you need to do more than that. It goes back to my earlier point about the fact the state has to provide good reasons for infringing upon a right, not speculation. And so I'd like to think, it would be wonderful to think that, that tracing apps could, in a sense, move us beyond the sort of restrictions we've had in recent months in a way that was also privacy regarding and thoughtful. But I think it's for the it's incumbent on the state to to make that argument rather than to roll it out and to hope that it all works out well and our privacy is protected. And so I'm I'm a little hesitant. I certainly I'm, I'm conscious of what some of the comments that have made come out of Oxford and other places about the the potential effectiveness of these apps. But there are also sort of counter narratives as well that there's some skepticism out there about whether they actually work, um, whether they gather too much data and the like. And I know the federal and provincial governments are looking into these apps and really having to make difficult decisions about whether to sort of adopt them or not. I know there's a great sense of urgency that we've been in lockdown for many months and people want to move beyond that and, and any sort of solution that holds out that promise is, is obviously attractive. But I worry that we may end up adopting a, tracing apps and other technological solutions that really infringe upon privacy and then turn out to not have been as effective as we'd hoped. The other thing to say is that when you, when you move towards technological solutions, you often find they linger after the problem has passed, or at least the, the worst of the problem has passed. And we see this with all sorts of surveillance apparatus. We put up cameras or we, we install other forms of surveillance to deal with a particular problem. And when the problem passes, or at least public concern about the problem passes, the technology tends to stick around. And so my worry is that if we install tracing apps, which is essentially software that, that provides the state with really quite significant personal information, when the pandemic passes, what happens to that information and what happens to those apps? And if we normalise the idea that the state can know where we are at any particular moment and know who we're standing next to, what does that mean for larger conversations about surveillance and privacy? Could you imagine the development of a tracing app that you would be comfortable using on a voluntary basis based on you know, what data is collected, where it's stored, how long it's stored, who has access to it, are there any conditions under which you think an app would meet your own you know, standards for what privacy rights should look like in this situation? 
So that's a great question. I'm not sure I'm, I'm the typical case because as a privacy scholar, I probably tend to think and worry about this more than a lot of people. I think there's a balance to be had, right? Privacy is important, but so is security, public health, personal safety. All those things are, are fundamentally important as well. And so in any of these sort of conversations, we need to be thinking about how we balance those things, at least in my view. For me, I want to have confidence in a number of things. One, I want to have confidence that it's actually going to work. Now, that may be difficult to show in the current context, but I'd certainly like to see more than a sort of vague promise that actually I'd like to see an explanation as to how they think this is going to work and some evidence. There's reason to think it will work before I install an app on my phone that's going to surrender potentially you know, very sensitive personal information. That's the first thing. I do also think you need to have a very clear structure for how that data is going to be stored, how it's going to be protected, how it's going to be shared, and if it is going to be shared with whom and under what circumstances. And I don't think it's okay to simply, again, sort of give a vague outline of those things. I think before I'd install the app, I want to know exactly who's going to be responsible for that data and even a structure by which I can interrogate it and find out how it's being used and if necessary, make a complaint. The other thing I'd want to see is some sort of strategy for what happens at the end, that this is not an open-ended question. I'd like to, to see some sort of description about, well, if there is going to be an app, how long are we intending to use it? How long is that data going to be kept? What is the end game, essentially, of, of taking this step? Rather than the sort of an open-ended question, you'll install this app on your phone and, and it may be there for a very long time or potentially forever. Because if it is the case that COVID-19 becomes an ongoing fact of life, then the question becomes, well, do we also expect that we're going to keep tracing apps on our phones indefinitely? And what would be the implications of that for the sort of broader question about privacy rights and surveillance in our society? And I think we have to have those conversations earlier rather than later. My concern is that when you take these steps, you normalise the erosion of privacy, that people get used to it, and then it becomes much more difficult to have a conversation about stepping away from tracing apps or the like. And I think my experience about that was informed by early years of doing work in the UK when government uh, in the 1990s stepped in and installed CCTV cameras very broadly. It's now very difficult to have a conversation about dismantling that surveillance apparatus because it's become such a part of everyday life. I don't think people think about the privacy implications involved. And so there's a, there's a point beyond which it's just, it becomes almost impossible uh, to get the public to think about the world being different. And so I worry that if we, in the current pandemic, move to a place where we really give up a lot of privacy and we normalize certain types of tracing and surveillance, that when hopefully this pandemic ends, it may be more difficult to reassert those privacy rights or to reclaim things that we may have lost. Let me conclude our chat today then um, by asking both of you to look beyond our Canadian borders and to ask you whether there are any lessons that we can learn from other countries how they have upheld rights or maybe have up, utterly failed to upheld rights, um, whether we're looking at rights to the protection um, of life or refugees or right to privacy during this pandemic. And what can we learn from these experiences? Maybe there are even experiences from our own past that we can refer to, but we're making decisions in such a moment of, of great uncertainty. And, and I think both of you have made it very clear how important the implications are of those decisions and that they're going to stay with us for a long time. So any lessons that you'd like to share that you have identified just by looking elsewhere? As opposed to where to look for, for model approaches, I would actually look within Canada 
and even here in British Columbia, we've seen province and the, the city make significant progress in terms of um, housing those who might not have housing and expanding the notion of collective responsibility. And certainly, I'm not suggesting this has been done flawlessly. There are severe problems and, and systemic prejudices that, that haven't been addressed or resolved. But nonetheless, there has been some progressive movement to expand the understanding of community. Who are we responsible for? And the virus has had this effect of because it makes us all vulnerable and interconnected to, in some ways, expand our understanding of who, who we're accountable to and who we're responsible for. As Ben noted, the border is a place where certain rights are just weaker than others. And I would challenge us to see what about this crisis actually allows us to strengthen those rights? And what about this crisis allows government to work in these spaces in ways that can enhance our understanding of our shared responsibility towards one another. Maybe the one thing I would say is that it's easy to forget how long uh, it takes to, uh, to establish rights. So even when you have a document like the Charter, which is I think an incredibly significant document in Canadian history and has, has been really fundamental in, in sort of the protection of rights in this country, it takes many, many, many years of advocacy, of litigation, of court cases and the like to give expression to those rights, to flesh them out and to make them meaningful. So they're hard won, but they're very easily diminished and eroded. So you can spend decades building a right and then sweep away some of its most powerful protections overnight. And so I think this is one of the things that's very important to realize in moments of emergency is that the tendency is to think, we need to make immediate changes to deal with the current crisis. And often that's at the expense of rights. But when the emergency passes, reclaiming those rights is actually very difficult. They don't just reassert themselves. You, in some respects, you end up at the bottom of the hill again and you have to start climbing. Ben, Efrat, it's been such a pleasure having you here with us today. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. That's it for today. Thanks for listening to the Global Migration Podcast. That was Antia Ellerman, Efrat Arbel, and Ben Gould discussing the rights of refugees and the right to privacy in the age of COVID-19. To learn more about today's speakers, visit our website at migration.ubc.ca slash podcast. You can also find more information there about public events and research projects organized and supported by the Migration Research Cluster including the Storytelling for Change Filmmaking Campaign. This is a really fantastic new initiative organized by the UBC Community Refugee and Migration Working Group and is aimed at all youth across Canada who are interested in sharing their own stories of belonging, diversity, and social justice through the medium of a short film. As part of the Storytelling for Change campaign, experts from the filmmaking community are offering two virtual mentorship webinars on filmmaking, and there are a host of cash prizes for the best short film submitted before the August 1st deadline. Learn more at migration.ubc.ca slash storytelling for change. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Until next time, be well and be kind.